0: a little strange to dismiss the kids this early, and we're thankful for uh, our CFC Kids volunteers this morning for taking a little extra time uh, with our kids. Uh, thank you for uh, being gracious to, to let me go early, um, And uh, but I, I trust that uh, even if the elements are a little bit in a different order today, you'll still be blessed by the rest of our singing time spent in communion. Um, but let's... Let's get into it as we continue through the book of Revelation, and I'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, uh, we're so thankful that we have your word, and even where it's mysterious, maybe uh, strange um, sections of, pa- of your word that maybe we're less familiar with, we're thankful that you give us a, a community to interpret it together with, and we pray that we would be faithful not just in understanding what it means, but uh, that you would give us grace to live it out. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every once in a while, you know, as I look at the calendar and I ask myself if I'm going to preach a special sermon because of something on the calendar like Mother's Day, and I go, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go ahead and continue with whatever we had planned. And then God is like, no, you're actually going to preach about a mom today. Uh, because if you look at today's passage in Revelation 12, this passage about a mother and a child versus a dragon lines up with Mother's Day. I didn't do that. You can thank the Lord for that one. Um, It's not about moms in general, about how to be a mom, or uh, five tips on motherhood, or anything like that. We won't necessarily get that today, but I think we'll be helped by the sort of uh, fantastical, fairy tale sounding uh, view of the world. Uh, Like I've told you, Revelation is sort of a behind the scenes look. Here's how the world really is. Here's what's actually happening in the world. And a lot of it through, you know, weird images of beasts and dragons and marks and seals on the forehead and oceans and angels and stars and all kinds of things happening and here we get right to the middle of the book, and we're, we're starting over again, okay? So it's going back to, not the beginning of time, but it's going back to the beginning of what re- the, that time period that the book of Revelation covers, which is from the time of Christ's coming uh, through the church age until his return. And the way it does it is it's going to give it to us in what sounds like a fairy tale, okay? You've got three basic characters, a mother the mother's child, and a dragon. Those are the three characters that we're going to see over and over again in, in this chapter. And as we move through the chapter, we're going to see, we're going to go through it in sort of four stages, okay? So as we're just going to do chapter 12. It's not long, it's 17 verses, but it's it's dense. But as we move through it, we get Not necessarily a chronological story like here's the first scene and after that happens, here's the second scene and then when the second scene is done, here's the third scene. It's not that kind of story. I remember when I was a child, um, my mother was recounting to me a book, a novel she was reading and she was having a really difficult time because as she was reading through, she couldn't tell when she was in a flashback or not. Maybe some of you have had a, a tough time reading through a book or watching a movie and you can't tell. Some movies will just tell you, five years ago. Right? Or do you remember the real old shows where the whole screen would go right? And then around the border of the TV screen is like foggy. And you're like, oh, this is a dream. Okay? So that's the, the director or cinematographer or whoever is responsible for that, cueing you in like, hey, this is a flashback. Revelation is like the novel my mom was reading. They're just hoping you pick it up. Okay? One, it's a flashback. So as we move through all of the book of Revelation, we we get flashbacks. It goes back and forth, okay? And we see some of that just here in chapter 12. So we're going to see this fairy tale. It starts by giving us the setting, and then it kind of rewinds and gives us some background. Then it gets to the climax, and then it gives us the point. Setting, the background to the setting of the story then the climactic point of the story, and then the, the moral of the lesson. Right? Kind of like most fairy tales. right? You get the moral of the story at the end. So a mother, her child, the dragon, those are the characters. We're going to go setting, background, climax, point. And the main question as we move through it is, where are we in all of this? Obviously, fairy tales only matter if it makes sense to us. So from Little Red Riding Hood to... Hansel and gretel i mean sometimes it takes a little work like never put yourself in an oven or like what's the point don't trust old women that live in the forest i don't i don't know but usually there's some point to the fairy tale that you're supposed to take with you and that's no doubt true with god's word that it's to profit us that's why god inspired it so let's move uh at hopefully a reasonable pace I'll read to you the first six verses, which is the setting. The first six verses, which is the setting. And the setting shows us the world's story centers on the threat of one man to all that is evil. All, all that is evil is threatened by the birth of one person. That's the setting. Let's look at it in verses 1 through 6. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child she might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so let's look at the characters. First, we meet the woman. This woman in verse 1 to 2, this woman represents the covenant people of God. Uh, especially because of today's time crunch, I don't have the time to... Here's five different positions on who the woman is. Here's three different positions on the dragon. I'm just going to give you what I think is most agreed upon and I think most reasonable, but uh, the woman represents the covenant people of of God, God's covenant people. She doesn't represent the entire earth. She represents the people that are God's elect. That's what the book of Revelation is for. That's what it's after. At first, she's seen as a heavenly woman, just as God's earthly people belong to a heavenly Jerusalem. And you can check out Galatians 4 for that, okay, where Paul talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the city that we're actually citizens of, okay? So she represents, she's this heavenly woman because she represents this heavenly perspective on who God's people actually are. Uh, The sun and the moon might simply represent the Lord's sovereign protection over her, but specifically, if you remember Joseph's dream back in Genesis 37, you remember Joseph had a couple of dreams and he was foolish enough to tell his family, like, I had this dream where all y'all were bound down to me. Want me to tell you the next one? And they're like, we hate you. (laughs) And one of those dreams was uh, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. Okay, so the sun is Jacob. The moon is. Who's the moon? Rachel. Right? And then the 11 stars are the brothers. So presumably he's the 12th star, and he's saying, Mom, Dad, and all my brothers are going to bow down to me. God promised it, he gave me this dream. And that's why they hated him. But it represents Israel, right? That, that covenant community of God through whom God would bring the uh, uh, promise uh, that he promised back in uh, the beginning of Genesis. So I think that's what's being channeled here. This is the people of God. God's sovereignty is upon them. His protection, his, his oversight is upon them. And the mother pictures Israel not as an ethnic group but as a faith group. I think it's a mistake to take this as just an ethnic people and then the faith people will deal with that somewhere else. This is the faith people. That means you, right, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. So the woman is God's covenant people that, of course, was in the Old Testament largely ethnic Israel, but not only, even back then there were people who can proselytize and become a part of God's faith community. And in important important ways, uh, the barren women of the Old Testament, remember all those barren women who wanted so desperately to be moms and it took a miracle to become a mom, they all sort of picture uh, Israel that as a group, as a community, Israel is a mom who's expected to give birth to a coming seed, a particular child that is promised. And of course, all of this reflects Genesis 3, where the mother of all living, Eve, is told that she and all mothers after her will give birth through increased pain, but through that pain, eventually there will be a seed who will turn things around. Remember that? Okay, so as soon as we got in trouble, God brings a promise. Yes, Eve was deceived, but through Eve, there eventually will come an offspring, a seed, who will turn things around. And so now that's the people of God have always been waiting for this moment. Satan was waiting for this moment. And this is the moment we're coming upon here in this passage. So in this setting, the covenant people of God are ready to finally see the long-awaited birth of the promised seed. Then we see the one who's threatened by the promised birth of that seed, who is Satan in verses 3 to 4. Again, channeling Genesis 3.15, the promise that the serpent would eventually be defeated by a coming seed from the woman, Satan is that serpent, here depicted as a dragon, that devouring dragon who's sitting there waiting for the birth of the seed so he can devour that child, so he can kill the, the promised Christ, the Messiah. This depiction of the dragon, he's got seven heads. Seven is a number of completeness or perfection. He's not, to use a bigger word, he's not ontologically perfect. Satan is not a perfect being. It's just it's talking about his... The perfection of his rule and his reign uh, his ten horns horns speak to sovereignty uh, regal rule and reign ten is a number also constantly used throughout uh, revelation to, to mean many or just much or complete or total and obviously the seven diadems the seven crowns speaks to his rule and reign in the world now you need to remember that this is at the time of expecting the birth of the promised seed. Jesus is not on the scene yet. And you might ask, well, does does Satan rule the world? I remember when Satan offered Jesus, if you would bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Jesus' response wasn't, that's dumb, you don't have the kingdoms of the world. I do. In a sense, the devil has all this authority. He had the keys he had the keys of death, he's large and in charge. So he's got the diadems, he's got the crowns. He has this authority that hasn't been taken from him yet. That's what he's scared of. Just like Herod was scared that the child would become the king of the Jews. Remember, and Herod uh, rolled out this infanticide to kill all children two years and younger to try to protect his throne. Well, Herod is satanic. Because that's, that's Satan's entire motif. That's his whole theme. That's his goal. That's his purpose is to protect his own authority. So when Jesus survived those temptations, Jesus was basically saying, no, I'm going to take the kingdom from you the right way. Not by bowing to you. But Jesus didn't say you don't have a kingdom. So, so Satan is viewed here as this dragon that rules the earth. This dragon that wears all the crowns. Whoever the human rulers are, He's, he's behind things, manipulating things. He's got the, the, the nations under his thumb. Uh, the world is enshrouded in this darkness under his rule and reign. And then verse 4 tells us his tail uh, s- is sweeping a third of the stars and, and, and cast them down to the earth. And that is traditionally understood as uh, Satan's initial rebellion, where he brings a large portion of the angelic host. they They're good angels, all angels, God created them good, but a large portion of them rebelled with Lucifer and took their stance against the Lord. Um, And Satan has already been depicted, if you remember back in chapter 9, verse 1, he's already been depicted as a star fallen to the earth. Okay, So very little disagreement here that the dragon is Satan. And what he's being threatened by is the birth of, Of a savior, a king savior, a savior who will take the rule and reign uh, authority from Satan's hands, rob him of his throne. Of course, it rightly belongs to Christ. Satan's a usurper. Finally, we're introduced to the seed himself. And you know the answer. That answer, as I've already said it, that answer is Jesus Christ. He's the promised Messiah. Satan has all these diadems and horns, but this child is going to rule and reign all the nations, verse 5, okay? Jesus is to fulfill Psalm 2. That's what the rod of iron's about. Psalm 2 said that uh, the son is going to crush the rebelling nations, inherit total sovereignty of all the peoples. This is what Satan is threatened by. And then the story is compressed because, uh, you know, as we, as we look at this passage, we see that it sort of fast forwards a little bit past some events but she gives birth to the child in verse 5 he's the one who's going to rule all the nations with the rod of iron fulfills, fulfilling psalm 2 where her child was caught up to god and to his throne so you're not supposed to picture the baby's born umbilical cords cut rapture okay that, that that's There's a lot that transpired in between there. Jesus was born, he grew in stature and wisdom, he became a young man, he uh, got baptized, he entered his ministry, he lived the perfect life. Satan tried to tempt him, pulled him into the wilderness, tried to trick him, tempt him, deceive him, lure him. None of that worked, and uh, uh, Jesus survived all of that. Uh, So this is just compressing that uh, and moving ahead through Jesus taking on death for those that he came to save, and then Jesus defeats death in his resurrection. Then after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, and that's where he's caught up with God. So John is just fast-forwarding. Yes, the child was born, lived the perfect life, died the death that we were supposed to die. He died the sacrificial death. He defeated that death in his resurrection, and then he ascended. He's caught up. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. So he's, he's fast-forwarding that because he wants to get back to the behind-the-scenes stuff that we sometimes don't pay attention to So, in the setting, Satan is unsuccessful in consuming the child. He tried infanticide through Herod. He tried to persuade Jesus to disobedience. He tried to manipulate and even possess one of his inner circle, Judas, to defeat him through betrayal, torture, and death. And none of it was successful. Jesus won, Jesus was victorious. He was not devoured, he was not consumed, he was not deceived, he was not defeated. So then the people of God, the God's covenant community, are left without the physical presence of Christ, right? Jesus left, what about mom now? And so what the passage tells us is the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. She's not alone, she's not left hanging by herself. And in this place, she's going to be nourished for one thousand two hundred. In sixty days I'll refer you back to last week's sermon where I talked about the importance of that number one thousand two hundred and sixty days is the same number as uh, the, the forty two months that we saw in chapter eleven um, the time times and a half that we saw as well I think it's the same time which is the church age the church period Okay, the, the, the time between Christ's ascension and return this period in which the church lives this is where we live okay yes it's been two thousand years but it's it's an age it's an aeon and that's i think what this represents so jesus ascended god's covenant community are they left hanging no Uh, it's hard it's wilderness it's not paradise yet you're not home yet but god nourishes you in the wilderness in the dark place. In the difficult times, you were put in trial. What was Jesus experiencing when he was in the wilderness? Temptations. How did Israel survive the wilderness? Not great. When they were in the wilderness, they were tempted. They failed a lot. Jesus' experience in the wilderness was total success. Why? So that he can grant you success. So as we hack it out in the wilderness, we depend on God. He nourishes us just like he nourished Israel with with manna and miraculous sources of water. If you remember those stories, those accounts, that's the setting. Now, uh, I want to remind us that this is an encouragement for us to not be like the failed Israelites who grumbled about being in the wilderness. Let's not long to go back to Egypt. Don't get discouraged. Revelation is not like, see, it's all good. No, it's a wilderness and it's hard. Let's not lose sight of the promised land, and that's, let's not lose sight of the fact that the, your, this wilderness time is 12:60 days, not 1260 literal days, but it's a time. It has a beginning, it has an end. It is not forever. This is not your forever place or your forever uh, experience. This is a time of testing. This is a time of trial. This is a time of endurance. You're in a race right now. This is not spectator time. This is run time. This is sweat it out and grind it out time. This is a difficult time, but it's not impossible. God nourishes us to give us what we need as we await the return of our Christ King. And this is why this passage is here. This passage is not, Revelation as a whole is not here to give us a crystal ball to look into the future. It's not a code that we use to try to figure out who to vote for. It's a wilderness guide. It's a wilderness guide. It's a survival guide. It's encouragement and hope while we live in a dark and scary world. Now we kind of get a flashback. Now we get a little bit of background, and the background is this, that Satan and his rebels were cast down from heaven, but they seek to deceive the world. The reason why the wilderness period is difficult is because Satan, his agenda, even though he couldn't kill the sun, he wants to kill those uh, co-heirs of the sun. And look at 7 through 9. Now, war arose in heaven, not now what happens next. It's, ooh, the, the screen is going like this, and it's flashback. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. The, the, the dragon was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We'll pause there because I I think that's the background and then next we get to the climax. So right here, many understand this and and this, it it depends on who you are, what your background is, maybe this blows your mind, but many understand this to be an account of Satan's first rebellion. He was a good angel and then he got into a a fight with Michael and Michael's just better or, or God had Michael's back and then kicked out all the rebelling angels out of heaven and now they're like wandering spirits that are disgruntled that they don't get to be in heaven anymore. While that's true, we don't know exactly when that happened or how that happened. And I don't think that's what this is about. I don't think this is an account of Satan's initial rebellion, Satan's first sin, if you will. I I don't think that's what this is about when you look at it in context. In context, it seems that this is actually about Satan's defeat by Christ's success. Satan's defeat by Christ's success in his life, death, and resurrection. I've got to move quickly, but let me try to bear that out really fast. You remember back in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, if you take that verse by itself, you're like, oh, Jesus was there when Satan first sinned. Aw, what a sad reflection. But again, when you look at the context, the disciples weren't asking Jesus, Jesus, how did it all begin? Where did evil come from? The disciples just came back from, from kicking some demon tails, right? They were exercising demons, casting demons out, and they came back and they told Jesus, like, whoa, all we have to say is your name. And, 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 and they listened. This, this, was net, this is unprecedented. We used to have to take the people to the temple, hope the Pharisees read enough Scripture, And just us fishermen, we're just, we have this power because of your name? And then Jesus goes, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Now, is Jesus going, yeah, I remember way back when he thought he was hot stuff. Or is Jesus going, what you're experiencing here physically, there's a spiritual representation of that that I saw. And that is, Satan losing his power, losing his dominion, his diadems falling off. He's losing this power and control and grasp that he he has on this world because I, the promised seed of the woman, came to kick in the front door of his house and start looting his whole place. That's the fall of Satan. Not Satan's rebellion and how Satan became wicked, but the fall of Satan from his height of rule and power also in verse 20 luke chapter 10 verse 20 that same text jesus shows that the focus his focus in telling them that he saw satan fall from heaven wasn't so much to explain their exorcisms their ability to cast out demons what he actually tells them the real victory is that their names are recorded in heaven So he he tells the disciples, I know it's really exciting. You're out there casting demons, but that's not the win. The win is that Satan approaches heaven and goes, Lucas can't be saved. How can Lucas be saved? Have you seen this? Have you seen when he did this? Do you see how he talks to this person? And if I were privy to that conversation, what would I be able to say? Would I be able to excuse myself? Would I be able to say, actually, that's not what happened? No, Satan accuses because he actually has ammo against us. And it's true. But that's why we need Christ. Would I be able to say something? Yes. But what I would be able to say is not actually I did this or did that. It's actually Jesus. Jesus covers it. And you have no place for accusation. Not because I didn't do things, but because even though I did things, Jesus did something greater. Jesus came to defeat all accusations against God's people. So Jesus tells his disciples, you think the power is casting demons out of people? The power is your name being recorded in a log that says innocent when the universe knows you're guilty. How does that happen? That happens by me, Jesus, coming on the scene and defeating the power that Satan has over everybody, which is sin and condemnation. So Satan is excommunicated from heaven, not in his initial rebellion. Even in his rebellion, you remember when he he, he comes into heaven, imagine like a court scene. You remember in Job, Satan walks in He just pushes open the doors (laughs) and walks into court with his fancy suit and his briefcase full of accusations and slams the briefcase down. And he's like, let's talk about Job. And God's not like, you're not allowed here. Get out. God's like, okay, next case, Job. It's like Satan has the right to bring accusations against people and the judge has to sit there and listen to it. So that's what Satan does throughout scripture. That's what Satan's angle is. He's allowed in court. And his excommunication getting kicked out of heaven is him getting kicked out of court. Your briefcase doesn't hold anything of value anymore. So it's not Satan's origin story. It's about Satan's role as accuser. And now he no longer has the power to accuse and to condemn. This heavenly court where Satan had access, he now has nothing to say to the judge. He now has nothing of any value in his briefcase. His opening statement has been disproven. And he has no closing statement. Satan is disbarred. And now we see this further proved. You might be like, ah, I don't know. Well, let's look at the climax of the story. Starting in verse 10. We'll do 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. That's usually an angelic announcement or directly words from the Lord himself. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying... Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, see, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. How was he thrown down, the blood of the lamb? When does the blood of the lamb happen? Not back before Genesis or sometime in the garden, it's at Calvary. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The climax is that Satan is thwarted by Jesus' death and resurrection. Satan is defeated as an accuser, but he still, that doesn't mean he has nothing to do anymore. He still has lots of wrath to dole out, the text says. He's only conquered by faith in the blood of the seed, faith in the blood of the lamb, faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that Satan is conquered, meaning every single Hollywood movie that I know of that involves Satan or demons or the end of the world and, and they find some ancient artifact to try to defeat a devil. They're all wrong and it's dumb. One thing only defeats Christ and it's not crucifixes, holy water, artifacts, knowing the demon's name, what I, the blood of the Lamb. And it's not go to your home and cleanse it of spirits and and this kind of thing. It's do you conquer through perseverance? Do you survive the threats of doubt and temptations to deny Christ? That faith in Christ, that conquering faith in the blood of Jesus, proves itself out in a life of faithful witness, even under the threat of death in verse 11. So heaven rejoices that Satan can no longer walk in with his briefcase, but the earth the earth, is warned that that doesn't mean he doesn't have anything to do. He still is not done. By the way, looking at that time, I'm not going to get into it, but just as a teaser, when we eventually get to Satan being bound, and you're like, well, how can Satan be bound if he's still active and this kind of thing? How can he be kicked out and still have something to do? It's the same dilemma. How has the, the power of Satan been robbed from him, but he still seeks somebody to devour. How's how did he lose his diadems but he still seems like he has controlling influence in this world. There's this tension in this church age. Where Satan has power but he doesn't. He's bound but he's not. He's defeated but he's still wriggling around and lashing out with some last swipes of his blade so to speak. But make no mistake, he has great wrath and he's operating on a tight schedule. He knows his time is short, the text says. And that's serious. So here's the point. We saw the setting. We saw the background. That was the climax. Here's the point. 13 to 17 show us that we need to live in the awareness that Satan seeks to destroy those who follow Christ. We need to live in this awareness that Satan seeks to destroy those who follow Christ. 13 to 17 and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, in other words, he doesn't have that power to accuse that through Jesus Christ, God can actually inscribe your name, my name into a book of life. He's not, he, he's not able to defeat that, that victory of the cross so when he saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given uh, the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. This isn't new. We, we saw this, right? She goes through the wilderness. The eagle represents God's uplifting protection. You think Isaiah there, renewed, given strength. And she's brought to the place where she's nourished for a time, times, and a half time. That's the same time as 1,260 days. I showed that last sermon in chapter 11, so you can go back to that if you want more on that. 15, the serpent. He couldn't get Christ. Now he's chasing the woman, right? She's in the wilderness. He's after her. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. I think that last line belongs to the beginning of 13, so we're not going to cover that. I think that actually introduces the next section. Um, and I know some of you might be excited that we're going to get into the beasts. I don't know. Um, not today. So here we return to the story picking up where the dragon was unable to kill the child in 13 to 16. The woman is kept in the wilderness. The dragon spews out floodwaters to try to kill the woman in the wilderness, but the dragon is unsuccessful. He will not kill the church. Some try to pin this to a specific event in time, but I think it's probably fulfilled in many events. But probably the point is that uh, Satan's deceit is what proceeds from his mouth. Uh, in, in, in Revelation, what comes out of the mouth are words. When words come out of Jesus' mouth, it looks like a what? A sword, right? And when words come out of Satan's mouth, it looks like flood. It, He's trying to sweep away people in a flood, like the flood in Noah's day, like the Red Sea that should have flooded the Israelites, but God kept it and it only flooded the Egyptians, etc., etc. It is satan's deceit satan pours out flooding waters to lie kill and destroy we're not wondering when in the future is there going to be another big flood that kills people the flood is satan's lies and attempts to deceive you and pull you out of the church to snatch you up like the wounded little gazelle in the back of the pack that's his desire but it is not successful against the true people of God. Here's the tricky part. If the woman is God's covenant people, I wanted to skip this, but if you're sitting there and you're anything like me, I was like, man, I was really hung up on this. I'll try to do it quickly. But the tricky part is if the woman is the covenant people of God, then who are the people that Satan's going after in verse 17? I found that to be problematic. This whole time I'm saying the woman is God's people. And then in 17, The dragon becomes furious that he's unable to deceive the woman, destroy her. So then he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are they? It tells us clearly, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's Christians. Okay, I'm going to spare you the many, many options. I think these are the two best options. Either A, the woman is the covenant community at the time of Christ's birth. And at that time of Christ's birth, Satan unleashed everything he could through Herod, through Judas, through the Roman soldiers, through uh, the synagogues to stamp out the early church right when it started. But it didn't work. And from the book of Acts onward, now everybody's coming in, man, Every, from all languages, tribes, nations, and it's, it's just spilling over. And so when he saw that killing it right there at the start didn't work, now he's going to go after all the the converts, all the disciples that are made. I think that's very viable. B, another option, the woman in the wilderness is the church age in general. That 1260 days, that whole church age, that's the, 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 the woman is the whole church, all God's people in general. Then, at the very end of the church age, for a brief period of time, Satan tries one final swat at the church. It seems successful at first, but it proves not to be. The church survives it, And then he tries to do what he can against any remaining believers after that. That matches chapter 11. If you go back and listen to the sermon on chapter 11, the two witnesses are the church. They're successful. They're powerful. They're out there doing all this ministry. And then Satan kills the two witnesses. Everyone's celebrating that they're dead. And then, whoa, they're not dead. Because the church always bounces back. You remember that? That might be speaking about a specific event in the very last days of this church age where it seems like the church is defeated, but it's not defeated, and that might be his final flood water. It didn't work, and then he tries to kind of stamp out the remaining. Either case, in either case, the idea is the same, and here it is, don't miss it. I said it already. We need to live in the awareness that Satan seeks to destroy those who follow Jesus Christ. I need to wrap this up, but I just want to give you a few quick applications from that last line, that last verse 17. This is a message to those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's who Satan is after. If you're a a person who doesn't care about the commandments of God, Satan could care less about you. You're in his pocket, you're in his kingdom. Why, Why would he waste any time on his whiteboard in hell, right? Figuring out strategies to get you when you're already gotten The danger and the wrath that he's doling out, the wrath that he's doling out is on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is obedience, following commandments. Look, let's not use the excuse of, well, that's legalism. It's not legalism. To learn scripture, learn what God wants, and do it. That's not legalism. That's obedience. And that's what characterizes the life of a Christian. Not just obedience, but obedience and belief who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and the two go together. If we really believe the testimony of Christ, we're believers, then we're also obeyers. If you're an obeyer without real belief, then you're a legalist or a hypocrite or just a religious person. Conversely, if you say you hold to the testimony of Jesus, but it doesn't show up in your life like obedience, then you're hollow, full of talk and no walk. But the two go together. One precedes and produces the other. Faith in the testimony of Jesus, holding to that testimony of Christ, believing it and communicating it to others, and obedience that stems from it, that flows from it. So notice the language, Christ's commands are kept and Christ's testimony is held. There's a grip that you have on it and that grip is going to be challenged in this life. The temptation is let that go. Did God really say that? He didn't really say that. His same strategy in the garden is the same strategy he uses. That flood that goes out, it's always the same. God didn't really say that. That's not really true. Do what you want to do. You can tell if you are safe from the wrath of the dragon because faith looks like something. It looks like something, and that something is obedience. Now, how can God's people be both protected and in danger? The true people of God persevere, and they will not lose. They will conquer. But Satan doesn't know who those people are, so he tries everybody. Can we know if we are? These are questions to help you. Do you persevere? Do you hold to the testimony of Christ against challenges? Do you hold to Christ even when it's unpopular to Do you hold to Christ even when you know you'll get persecuted for it? Do you obey the commands of Scripture? None of us obey them perfectly, obviously. None of us would win. None of us would conquer. But is our life characterized by pursuit of God's commands, progress in God's commands? If I ask you, hey, how are your quiet times? Do you spend time with the Lord? Do you read Scripture? We're commanded to. And your answer is the same that you gave me three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it's like, eh, not really. I, I, I don't have the, the vision to be able to go, man, you're, you're definitely not in, but you know a tree bites fruits, Jesus said. Sometimes fruits are hard to discern, but sometimes not really. You go to the fridge and see a fruit that you can hardly tell, was this a pear? It's all moldy and spewing goo into your thing? I wouldn't know because our fridge is never, never has anything old in it. (laughs) There might be times you're like, I'm not sure if this fruit is old, but there are other times you're like, that fruit smells disgusting. And scripture over and over again cautions us to examine yourself. It's fitting, I think, that communion is after the sermon today because as you enter a time of self-examination, I think it's appropriate for you to Not be paranoid and go, man, did I sin this week? That's not the question. Again, we'd all be out. It's do I really cling to Christ and desire to serve him, desire to learn his commandments? Because the characteristic of somebody who defeats the dragon is somebody who obeys, who wants to follow Christ. And when we mess up, we feel that. We feel that. And we take that to the Lord and go, God, I don't want to miss quiet times anymore and keep pushing you aside for Netflix and push you aside for boyfriend, push you aside for girlfriend, push you aside for parents, push you aside for college, push you aside for career. I'll serve you when I have kids. Oh, how about grandkids? And one day you wake up and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I'm surviving the wilderness out here, but to come to him now and go, God, I can't survive the wilderness, but if you feed me, you can make water come out of a rock. And you can make me survive the harshest places in life and come out on the other side holding to the testimony of Christ. That's the charge and that's the encouragement. You're not doing it alone. You're doing it because God nourishes you to do it. So let's lean on him for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises embedded in this passage that we're not asked to defeat Satan. You through Christ have defeated Satan, we cling to that testimony, and we pray that you give us what we need to survive this journey as our congregation continues through worship, prayer, communion. We pray that you would give us grace to examine ourselves appropriately and to follow you with the grace that you infuse into our lives daily, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.